1: Welcome back. Rob Riggan-Ridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. We'll get back to more of your phone calls uh, before the top of the hour. got a few of the things I want to get to as well. But right now, I want to take a, a look at what's been happening within American political culture in recent years, and maybe some of which has spilled over to some degree uh, in our own political culture. But certainly what American politics has morphed into feels weird, feels different but different how and why. It's certainly a conversation our next guest has been involved in over the last few years. Uh, she's the New York Times bestselling author of Hiding in Plain Sight and The View from Flyover Country. Her latest book is called They Knew, How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. Sarah Kendzior is going to be in Calgary this week in a couple of events uh, as part of WordFest, wordfest.com. There's an event on Saturday uh, to discuss the new book. Uh, she's part of a panel conversation on Sunday. damn lies and the power of truth again more details at wordfest.com joining us on the line is the aforementioned best-selling author sarah kenzier joins us here this afternoon sarah great to have you with us welcome to the program
2: oh thank you for having me
1: Uh, as i say and i think you know canadians sort of look in on on what's going on in in american politics with some maybe we're, we're intrigued we're confused we're alarmed i think it's it's a range of emotions but if you look at what's been happening. Maybe we call it the, the Trump years, the Trump era, but maybe it's more than just one, one man. How, how do you describe American politics at the moment?
2: Um, it's deeply broken. You know, Trump was not an aberration. He was a culmination. And I think in 2016, you know, he uh, showed a lot of Americans that contrary to their view of American exceptionalism, It can happen here, Uh, meaning, you know, a proto autocracy, uh, certainly a a kleptocracy, a kind of mafia state formation. Uh, I think the part that really startled Americans is that he and those around him uh, committed crimes, you know, obstruction of justice, abuse of the power pardon power, plotting a coup uh, right out in the open for four years, unimpeded. And when our institutions and our officials had the opportunity to hold them in check, uh, they refused to do so, and they're still refusing to do so now. And I think that that is what has led to this kind of atmosphere of uh, fear and denial and and confusion. I mean, very much like what you described uh, Canadians feeling, looking at it. Uh, from abroad, uh, you know, we're feeling it right here around us. It's very surreal.
1: What has the impact of the last couple of years been? The pandemic, which has certainly, I think, spawned a lot of conspiracy theories, some of which have gone mainstream. What's been the impact on, on the political discourse?
2: Well, people are traumatized by the pandemic, and it doesn't matter, you know, where you stand on, on vaccines or masks or anything like that. You know, it was a mass death event. It was an incredible disruption of everyday life. I think a lot of things that people took for granted were taken away. A lot of things people treasured, uh, you know, weddings, uh, you know, births, things like that. Those sort of milestone experiences were interrupted. And people are still, I don't even want to say recovering from that because the pandemic is ongoing and we're Mm -hmm. all just trying to cope with that. And so when that arrived after um, all of these years of political corruption. And of course, you know, the Trump era followed, you know, a lot of other disastrous times in American history, the 2008 financial collapse, uh, 9-11 and the disastrous war in Iraq. You know, we were already beaten down. And this was kind of the final straw. But what happens is that when people are in this state of mind, when they're so fearful when they're so traumatized it is much easier for a demagogue uh, to swoop in um, and manipulate them. It also, you know, tends to showcase all of the institutional flaws that we already have, you know, because it's not just Trump, like the CDC uh, failed the American people. Uh, the Democrats, I think, are failing the American people. This is very much a bipartisan uh, kind of failure. But when you're dealing with existential crises like a pandemic, um, you know that that is a, a frightening situation because it's uh, it's difficult just to keep your wits about you, uh, much less sort of scrutinize you know what is at the heart um, of this failure. Although that is what I what I do in my books.
1: Right, and in your latest book, I mean, it takes a look at this conspiracy culture which goes back a long ways. Um, and certainly we're we're seeing the manifestation of that now, which seems like mainstreaming uh, of conspiracy theories. I mean, the QAnon is is an interesting example of that. But, you know, this isn't a phenomenon that just emerged out of nowhere, right? There there are much deeper roots to all of this.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think something like QAnon, where for the most part, you know, it's it's not based on facts or evidence, but, you know, what's key to this is that sometimes it is. You know, sometimes they look at something like the Jeffrey Epstein case, and they're often ahead of the mainstream media and examining it because uh, the media and our officials often don't want to examine real conspiracies, especially when they implicate very wealthy, uh, very powerful people. And that's how we arrived at this point, you know, is a refusal to reckon uh, with the uh, the corruption and the crimes of the past um, when they've been committed by state actors. Because, you know, conspiracies are real. They're common. You know, the mafia that uses conspiracies. Espionage agents use conspiracies. The government uh, routinely has had some level of conspiracy, you know, Watergate, Iran-Contra. Like those are all, you know, the, the January 6th attacks. Those are all examples of actual conspiracy. So I think the word becomes stigmatized as this kind of wild, crazy thing. You know, it's like JFK Jr. rising from the dead or something like that, that QAnon comes up with. But this is a matter of fact level of deep entrenched corruption, secret plots by powerful actors who want to preserve their power. You know, that's not a wild thing. Um, The problem is that it's become so stigmatized and so associated with you know, baseless um, and often inflammatory rhetoric that folks don't want to delve deep into the real corruption uh, that underlies this institutional failure.
1: Well, it's interesting is there's another side too, too, that you talk about, you know, the, the belief in noble institutions, I guess, or so the belief that there are white knights within this system that, that, can, that can save it or that can, can save America. Does, does that stem from the same root here?
2: Yeah, I think that's a reflection of this culture of fear that I was describing earlier. You know, they Folks want to believe that there's some sort of savior in wait. that all of this makes sense somehow, that there's a secret plan, whether you're in QAnon or whether you're saying Mueller is going to save us or Merrick Garland is going to save us or Biden is going to save us or the elections are going to save us. Like They don't want to look at the big picture. They don't want to look at the fact that a lot of this corruption dates back decades. It involves recurring actors who are never punished. We have a culture of elite criminal impunity. You know, those are very frightening things to have to encounter, especially as an ordinary person. You know, like I personally cannot do a, a citizen's arrest. You know, like I, I have to count on the DOJ, for example, to do its job. And it's not doing its job. And so I think when folks don't, you know, somewhat understandably want to think about all this, they'd rather fantasize. But it's taken on a level in the United States. I think it's really our celebrity infotainment culture where people have, you know, candles for, for Mueller and Fauci, you know, with their faces on them, things like that, that, you know, you would expect to see with like pop stars or movie stars. They now do it over public servants. You know, they worship them. And and it's very creepy and weird to me. And I think it's a sign of, uh, in, you know, not just institutional failure. It's a sign of, you know, successful demagoguery because, honestly, this is the kind of thing, you know, you'd think you would see in a dictatorship, but Americans are participating in it willingly. And, of course, that goes for Trump as well. You see the cult of personality built around him as well.
1: Mm-hmm. And what are the consequences? I mean, you talk about complacency in the book that, that you argue keeps Americans complacent, but what what is the impact of that?
2: I mean, the impact, you know, on a day-to-day level is, people suffer because problems don't get solved you know these public servants who are being worshipped and who often kind of encourage these personality cults to form around them are not doing their job and you know we the ordinary people of america need them to do it and so it does encourage a passivity you know i try to not blame my fellow americans too much because i know how little We sort of have to work with you know we don't have health care we don't have a good economy like people have really had a very rough time in the last few years but there are powerful people who are in elected office or appointed to a certain position that have a task that they need to do and they're not doing it so i would encourage americans to put as much pressure on their public officials as possible and never fall for this rhetoric that somehow we're there to serve them you know they're there to serve us that's literally their job. And that shouldn't be some kind of like wild suggestion that I'm making. You know, sometimes folks treat it that way. Uh, it's, you know, constitutionally mandated. So I would like to kind of, you know, get back to basics approach uh, for American citizens where we just, we demand more um, and we keep demanding it until hopefully we get it. Right. You also
1: write about, you know, I mean, it's, it seems like a, a rife environment for for con men. Con men are not a uniquely American phenomenon, but part of your argument is that, it is in some ways uh, something that is or or that it's disproportionately an American issue.
2: Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, there's, you know, con men all over the world, but... In America, you know, one, they sometimes tend to be venerated. You know, we have this sort of, like, outlaw culture, you know, and there's been periods where, like, you know, mafiosos were kind of upheld as, like, ooh, they're bucking the system, that kind of thing. But they're not. They're people that are ripping you off. You know, they're people that are making your life worse. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, we have a, a culture, a political culture that rewards the wealthy and powerful for simply being wealthy and powerful. Like, if you're born into a wealthy and powerful family, you can get, you know, political positions. Uh, You can get all sorts of advantages in life. It goes against this myth that folks like to put out of, you know, you just, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. In America, you could be anything. I think a lot of folks don't want to, you know, reckon with that either, that those myths um, have fallen apart and that all of this, you know, contributes to an environment in which people are very susceptible to con men because one they're you know they're vulnerable they're in pain uh there are people that come in like vultures uh very knowledgeable ha- about how to be predators uh, to that pain you know donald trump is one of them um but i think there's also a kind of excitement to it you know we have this like i said a celebrity industrial complex where somebody's charismatic um you know if they seem compelling to others you know folks get swept in to the throes of it uh and you know it's often very tragic uh repercussions as they lay out in in they knew in in my new book
1: yeah well and it feels like it's uh, a bit of a tipping point at the moment or there's uh, there's a unique volatility uh at present as a result of some of the, the factors we we talked about do you, do you fear that this all gets worse before it gets better
2: yeah no i i am afraid i mean what the main thing i'm worried about at the moment is the normalization of political violence, the fact that, you know, we do have points of leverage, elections, etc., and we're seeing poll workers get threatened, uh, kind of local, ordinary public servants threatened, teachers, librarians, etc., uh, this used to not be Common. Uh, this used to not be something that you could uh, even have the technology to create. You know, we have now movements that operate digitally, where people from all over the country can can focus on one institution, one hospital, one school, etc., and attack the people working there. And there hasn't been um, an enormous amount of effort to control that kind of situation. I also worry, and this is more of a global thing, but particularly in America, after the 1918 Spanish flu, you know, what we saw in the U.S. was uh, white mob violence, anti-immigrant sentiment, uh, financial catastrophes. We are reliving very much the environment after the Spanish flu of of 1918. Uh, You know, we're we're recreating it right now. And so, you know, I worry about that, and I also worry – globally, um, you know, that we're moving into, uh, you know, wars and other, uh, you know, sorts of really destructive, uh, really uh, disruptive endeavors. I do think it's possible for this to be turned around. It just is going to take people actually recognizing the extent of of the crisis. And that's been the thing that they've often been unwilling to do.
1: Well, the new book, it's called They Knew, How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. We mentioned the two events happening Saturday, Sunday in Calgary, part of WordFest, wordfest.com. For more details, ticket information, Sarah Kensier, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate the conversation.
2: Oh, thank you so much.
1: All the best, Sarah. Take care. Uh, There you go. That's uh, bestselling author Sarah Kenzie. Her latest as mentioned. is called They Knew, How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. She'll be speaking Saturday afternoon and uh, Sunday as well. Two events happening in Calgary, part of wordfest, wordfest.com. I want to begin this hour with a conversation around anxiety. How big a problem is anxiety, like clinical anxiety, and how much of the last two years exacerbated the problem? It certainly feels anecdotally uh, like it has in a big way, right? And there's all kinds of reasons why people would be feeling anxious and why anxiety disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, would be a bigger problem now than it was, you know, say before 2020, But what's the best way to address that? A provocative new recommendation uh, from the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force has prompted a conversation about what the best approach here is. This uh, panel released some draft recommendations that included a recommendation that U.S. primary care doctors regularly screen all adults under 65 for anxiety. They say that anxiety disorders are highly prevalent in the U.S., but they are often unrecognized and, and undiagnosed. That are we trading one problem for another? Do we go from underdiagnosing the problem to over-diagnosing the problem? And if this isn't the best way to address the issue, what is? Uh, so I wanted to explore that in some more detail, right? How serious the problem is, what's the best way to address it? Uh, Joining us uh, for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Eddie Lang, member of the Canadian Task Force on Preventative Health Care and Department Head for Emergency Medicine at the University of Calgary's Cummings School of Medicine. Dr. Lang, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program.
3: Thank you for having me. Good afternoon, Rob.
1: Let's start with kind of the definition here, what we're talking about. I think people understand, you know, feeling anxious, what anxiety might mean to them. But when we talk about anxiety disorder, clinically diagnosed anxiety, so what is it we're talking about here?
3: Well, anxiety is a normal reaction to a number of stressful situations. It can be adaptive, it can help you prepare for a bad situation, or it can be maladaptive. It could diminish your functioning. So again, I'm an emergency physician and not a psychiatrist, but uh, we certainly see a lot of anxiety-related issues in the emergency department. When an anxiety situation is preventing you from functioning normally, whether it's because you're having panic attacks or you're no longer able to work because, or or contribute to normal relationships with those around you, because of anxiety, it becomes an anxiety disorder. Essentially,
1: when we look back for the last two years, and you know the impact this pandemic has had on people, worrying about COVID, you know, worrying about social connections, worried about their job, worried about a lot of things. I mean, it just seems logical. There's anecdotal evidence that you know this this is a, a bigger problem now than it was three years ago. Does, does that seem to be true in in your assessment?
3: Oh, you're absolutely right. Um, no matter how you look at it, uh, anxiety is on the rise in the population. In, in, we in the emergency department are seeing uh, a lot more patients coming in with alcohol-related problems, and that, some of that alcohol is being used to m- mitigate the effects of anxiety. Young people are, are turning to cannabis to manage their anxiety. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's clearly a serious and rampant problem to have anxiety, but what the best way to approach that situation is uh, something still under question.
1: Right. So let's take a look at this recommendation. So uh, this this panel in the U.S., the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, believes that primary care doctors should regularly screen all adults for anxiety. And maybe that would capture some who are currently, you know, unrecognized or misdiagnosed. What, what are your concerns, though, with that
3: approach? Uh, my main concern is that uh, currently our health care system is under significant strain, both mm-hmm. in terms of acute care and in the availability of mental health services. So if we are going to start having our family doctors who are already overburdened to now be mandated essentially to start distributing surveys to all of their patients, to have them score their anxiety symptoms, to see who screens positive, which is what screening would be, uh, that's not necessarily in best interest of, of our population or even in the patients who screen positive. The concern is, these screening tools, these surveys don't work necessarily all that well. They'll have both false positives and false negatives. And as, I were, as we were talking earlier, anxiety is a normal part of the human experience. If you go down this road, you sometimes begin medicalizing it, labeling people with anxiety disorder, even though what they have is a much milder, manageable version. And oftentimes, and we see this also in emergency, people will get onto medications for anxiety disorder which at the end of the day cause more harm than good. I'm speaking specifically about medications like Valium, where getting addicted is a serious risk when you embark on it.
1: Right. So what's some more productive way then um, sure. when it comes to, I mean, raising awareness, but also, you know, properly diagnosing anxiety? How do we go about addressing that?
3: Well, what we need uh, currently, I think, is more ready availability of mental health resources. So these can take a number of shapes. Right now, we're looking at several month waits to uh, see a mental health professional that for a non-urgent problem, which is often how anxiety is characterized. uh, Many of the family physicians who generally treat anxiety are also experiencing strain and don't have the availability to bring patients into their office, sometimes in a timely manner to address this. So we need to work more on the solution side than on the screening side. We need to uh, make sure that if someone has anxiety and they end up, let's say, calling HealthLink or 811, they're going to be provided with uh, a timely appointment with a psychological support. They'll be given resources that will allow them to manage their symptoms on their own, whether through a mental health app or some other resource, and. We'll also be able to educate our population who is suffering from anxiety, which, as you mentioned, is a large segment of our population now, to know what the potential risks are of taking uh, medication for this problem. So, the, the, the risks of, uh, of addiction and other some anxiety uh, some, uh, some anxiety conditions are treated with antidepressants, and those medications have risks and harms as well. So, uh, educating and having savvy. Patients in public are is, is I think the key part as long as well as making resources available to those in need,
1: yeah, for people who are worried that that it's maybe something they're experiencing i mean what what is first of all what is a red flag or what is is you know are the signs maybe that people should be watching for
3: well the the thing about anxiety is that it can manifest in so many different ways uh, you know we see patients in the emergency department who present with chest pain and difficulty breathing. And after we've figured out that uh, it's not a heart attack, it's not a blood clot in the lung, it's not pneumonia, we're often left to having a discussion with the patient as to whether uh, they're having anxiety in the first place. So I think, uh, you know, there's a wealth of resources out out there that um, people can turn to, including uh, Alberta Health Services resources. And uh, if you're concerned, I think, you know, if you check, some of these more trustworthy websites that can have information on on helping you appreciate whether you're suffering from anxiety symptoms or not and how to manage it. i think that's really important i mean at the point where you know let's say you know one of the common features of anxiety disorder are panic attacks right if you're experiencing multiple panic attacks that are you know potentially preventing you from leading your life safely let's say they occur while you're driving or they occur um, while you're doing some very important work or, or dealing with other family matters. Those are definitely the red flags.
1: Right. And not every case of anxiety needs intervention then, I guess, is the other side.
3: Absolutely. And, you know, there's some, certainly some downstream consequences and harms to telling someone that they have a mental illness and that they have anxiety disorder when in fact they're just experiencing life as it normally plays out for so many of us. Like, who wouldn't have some anxiety with everything that's going on in the world right now and uh, during the earlier phases of the pandemic? It would almost be abnormal not to be anxious.
1: Right, so short of that, I mean, there are ways that, that people can sort of manage it on their own in, in certain circumstances?
3: Well, I'll let you in on a secret. The yeah. uh, Well, it's not so secret, it's just not well-known. One of the best therapies available for people who suffer from anxiety disorder, much more effective than medications, is actually exercise. Uh, We're not Mm -hmm. exactly sure how it works, but people with anxiety issues uh, who exercise regularly and vigorously can often manage to get their anxiety under control without even having to see a psychologist or take medications.
1: Very interesting. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, Dr. Lang. appreciate your insight on all of this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today about. All the best. Take care. Uh, so there you go. There's uh, some some thoughts from an expert on the subject. Do we need widespread universal screening for anxiety? Probably not. But it is a problem we're dealing with. And, and it's certainly one that's got worse over the last two years. So that's Dr. Eddie Lang, uh, who's a member of the Canadian Task Force on Preventative Healthcare, Department Head for Emergency Medicine at the University of Calgary's Cummings School of Medicine. So this proposed uh, solution uh, from this uh, task force in the U.S. might actually end up causing more problems. And so yes, when you're overdiagnosing or misdiagnosing, that, that can lead to some serious implications potentially. You know, because in some cases then, you know, people are going to be prescribed medications to deal with anxiety and, and if they don't need those medications, well that that's not a good situation obviously. Uh, but yeah, look, there's no doubt right now we're probably dealing with the underdiagnosis of anxiety. And the problem is we've got a healthcare system that is already overburdened as it is. And maybe we just don't have a lot of flexibility when it comes to to addressing the problem. But it it is real. And as he says, not not every instance needs intervention. And a lot of it is just a natural reaction, too, to, you know, a a stressful world. Really concerning news concerning the energy situation in Europe and how far Russia is prepared to go to put the squeeze on European countries. Word today that uh, the Nord Stream Pipeline Uh, There's actually two natural gas pipelines that run under the Baltic Sea, according to officials in Sweden. uh, They detected two explosions close to where there have been some unusual leaks discovered this week on this pipeline. Now, would Russia sabotage its own pipeline? I don't know. Uh, But clearly, Russia is going to great lengths uh, to try to uh, put the squeeze on Europe, to try to uh, reduce or cut altogether natural gas shipments. And so Europe's facing a a crisis. How are they going to ensure that they get through this winter? And where are allies like Canada? Why aren't we in a position uh, to be able to address this crisis specifically? But the bigger question about global sustainability, uh, there's obviously still a need for natural gas. There's going to be for some time to come. And we've been falling further and further behind when it comes to our ability to contribute to that. An interesting new poll out this week shows that Canadians overwhelmingly want that. Strong majority of Canadians, more than 7 in 10, believe that Canadian LNG can improve global energy security and sustainability efforts. 73% said our country should advocate for Canada's energy sector as a leader in environmentally sustainable production. Almost 8 in 10, 79%. Say they prefer to use Canadian energy in their own day-to-day lives. So there's a real embrace of Canadian energy and a real belief that, you know, we can be a part of the solution globally, whether it's geopolitical crisis in Europe, whether it's, uh, you know, the environmental challenges in some parts of Asia, where they're still heavily dependent on coal, Canadian LNG can make a big difference. And it seems like Canadians are on board with us doing more. Uh, Joining us to talk more about the uh, poll they released this week and how we need to move forward on some of these big issues. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Cody Battersill. he is founder of Canada Action, canadaaction.ca. Cody, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the show.
0: Hey, Rob. Thanks always for having me on.
1: Yeah, tell it. you know, from your perspective, what what stands out to you in in this poll that uh, you released this week?
0: Well, this poll builds on some previous polls that we've done in the last year, and it shows an incredible majority of canadians support energy security and sustainability and we've seen what's happening in europe we've seen pipeline obstructionism in canada for the last decade we see what happened today with the nord stream pipelines and it all points back to the desperate need for a more balanced rational and pragmatic conversation at a national level about the strong business case to get more Canadian oil and natural gas to the world. It's existed for a long time. And also, the reality that we're going to need all energy sources for decades and generations to come. And that's wind, solar, nuclear, hydro, oil, natural gas, and so on. We need all of the above. And Canada has a really important role to play in helping the world with energy security and the environment.
1: Not just the situation in, in Europe, obviously. The case for more Canadian LNG is, is strong indeed. We've got, uh, as you mentioned, the situation in Asia, You know, concern about the environmental impact of, of coal burning. Obviously, though, in the short term, what's happening in Europe right now, Canadians are, are tuned into all of this, aren't they?
0: I think uh, you're absolutely correct. I mean, coal usage is now at an all-time high. What's going on right now in Europe is that people are burning wood and people are switching from natural gas to oil in order to heat their homes and keep their businesses going. We need natural gas and oil for more as well than just heating and transportation. It's fertilizer and it's industrial processes for food and cement and steel and um, all other sorts of chemicals that make the modern world possible. Canada has a really important role to play. We will have the lowest emission LNG on Earth. And when we look back 10 years ago, there was almost 20 LNG projects proposed. Now there's one big project that's more than 50% complete. But in that same time frame, the U.S. has gone and become the world's biggest exporter, building almost 10 projects completed or under construction, um, competing now with Australia and Qatar. So we need to get Canada in the game. And this poll confirms that, in fact, a strong majority of Canadians are on board with the reality and the need, the necessity for Canadian natural gas and oil, as well as all other energy forms.
1: So what's holding us back, do you think? You know, there's a
0: lot of, um, uh, in some of the most populated parts of Canada, they don't have oil and natural gas production locally, and there's a lack of understanding. And you can't really blame them. We also don't know about forestry or mining the same way that some of those communities might. And there's a big disconnect between urban centres and rural communities that are very resource dependent. The reality is we're all reliant and dependent on oil and natural gas and resources as a country, and we need to raise the level of decorum. We need to be nicer to each other. We need to build some find common ground for the Made in Canada solution of of what we've been doing and that's lowering our emissions while producing the most responsible sustainable uh, uh, barrel of oil and natural gas equivalent in the world also mining uranium for nuclear power biofuels and our wind and solar and hydro resources as well so we got to just raise the level of understanding and this poll shows that a lot of people when you get away from the protesters and the um you know the the fear mongering that exists we're going to need oil and natural gas for a long time and i think canadians are on board with uh, a pragmatic approach
1: yeah i think they are and and this should really shape that policy i mean it feels like we've missed the boat and i think there's there's that pessimism that man you know i mean you know the americans uh, have been expanding their lng export australia has been like a lot of other countries are pulling ahead but that doesn't mean that we've missed the boat entirely, right? That's not an excuse for inaction, even if we're behind the 8 ball a little bit. That should just give us extra urgency in addressing this, shouldn't it? Yeah,
0: absolutely. And And, you know, your listeners can find on our social media channels and on our website a lot of information about how Argentina is now going ahead with LNG. Nigeria has offered to send more LNG to Europe. Qatar is going to send more LNG to Europe in the next five to seven years. And all of the demand forecasts show LNG and natural gas usage potentially doubling in the next twenty years. Um, so Canada's got a huge role to play, especially because we have we will have the lowest emissions. we have strong indigenous partnerships and support, and so many other great um, uh, uh, aspects to the Canadian oil and natural gas story, including the massive amount of revenues that this industry generates for our communities and for our social
1: programs. Absolutely. Much more on all of this is mentioned, CanadaAction.ca. Cody, thanks so much for joining us here. Appreciate it.
0: Rob, well, thank you always for having me.
1: All the best. There you go. Cody Battersale, founder at CanadaAction, CanadaAction.ca. Uh, so this poll they released this week, again, showing overwhelming Canadian support uh, for expanding our LNG export capacity. As he notes, Canadians are coming to understand the world will need oil and gas along into the future. Canada should continue to play a strong role. The majority of Canadians think it's wrong for Canada to miss out on these energy opportunities. Three and four Canadians agree that exporting responsible, reliable Canadian energy expertise one way that Canada can play an important role in addressing climate issues. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.